So good morning. Uh, my name is Frank van Dun. I was asked by uh, Professor Hopper to give some thoughts on crime and punishment. I will do so, although I'm a rather sunny character and I do not like to talk about all these dark things, but I'll do my best. Now, I start with uh, approximately, from a, approximately the same uh, point uh, that Professor Hopp chose, uh, but I'll introduce it slightly differently just to uh, make the connection with my topic a bit clearer. If you ask about the meaning of the word crime, uh, you're obviously refer to the, the Latin, as in so many cases, uh, crimen. But the meaning of crimen in Latin is a bit different than the word crime because crimen, uh, plural crimina, uh, simply means a matter that is open uh, or awaiting decision or uh, resolution. So it is, in fact, anything that has yet to be settled that is a crimina. And uh, the solution is, of course, a discrimen, uh, which in uh, Latin refers to the marking of a boundary, uh, a separation, and therefore a discrimination is, in a sense, the solution to a crimen. It solves the confused uh, affair, state of affairs by drawing clear boundaries through it, by uh, revealing, uh, as it were, the, the structure below the confusion. It is as if you see an indiscriminate shape in the fog and then the fog lifts and you can discriminate exactly what is there. So the Kremen approach leads to a much broader uh, definition of the subject of crime and punishment uh, than the modern one which adds let's say an, an element of intentionality in some cases. A crime is an intentional violation of law right? and uh, then the question is, uh, what law are we talking about? Uh, or it uh, carries the notion of punishment within itself, saying the crime is defined as a punishable offense. And that raises the question of uh, punishment. Uh, punishment is, in fact, usually thought of as an act that would be a crime if it were not in response to a crime. So it's, uh, if a crime is a negation of law, then punishment merely compounds the negation but does not solve it. So in that sense, uh, crime and punishment are on the same side, the negative side of things, so to speak. But let's return to this notion of crimen, the uh, something that awaits or requires a decision or a, a resolution. In other words, a state of confusion or disorder. And we have, uh, in this sense, a concept that covers all interpersonal concept, uh, conflicts. Right? And it was uh, interpersonal conflict that uh, Professor Hopper was talking about in the uh, previous uh, lecture. Now, if you, you look at the uh, causes he gave, 
uh, I will just shortly repeat them using a slightly different terminology, you will find that every interpersonal conflict involves four uh, elements. Uh, one is there have to be several persons, so a plurality of persons. These persons have to have differences in their intentions, their values, their preferences, their beliefs, whatnot. So there's an element of diversity uh, involved. Uh, and third, uh, there must be something uh, which makes the conflict a hard one rather than just an intellectual difference of opinion. And these are these scarce resources, scarce means of action, which uh, are moreover accessible to the parties uh, in the conflict or the potential conflict. They can all have access, they all have access to the same resources which they intend to use for different purposes and for different things. Now one element that needs to be stressed that is that uh, considered from any person's point of view, every other person may be considered a scarce resource, right? Just as you yourself uh, consider in your intrapersonal choices, uh, you, you consider yourself a scarce resource. Uh, am I going to Bodrum or am I going to stay home and work? Uh, these are things that involve your own uh, scarce resource, your, your time and your body, your physical energy and so on. Now, I consider these four causes, plurality, diversity, scarcity, and access, uh, as uh, necessary and uh, jointly sufficient uh, conditions for a world of uh, conflict, or at least potential conflict. There has, of course, to be a triggering if, uh, event, but we're talking about the, the potentiality, the possibility of uh, conflict here. Now, if you remove uh, a necessary cause, and of course the, the consequence, in this case, the potentiality for conflict disappears. So there are, in theory, uh, four pure solutions to interpersonal conflict. And one is the institution of unity, uh, which removes plurality, uh, and which involves uh, usually the elimination of one or more, all except one, of the parties uh, as an independent decision-making center, therefore forcing the, other, uh, the others into the position of precisely a resource at the discretion of the one remaining uh, decision-making authority. This unity solution is, of course, very uh, popular both in politics and in other organizational affairs. Uh, people like to uh, set up organizations in which they command uh, the other people in it. Now, whether they are volunt voluntary members or not, uh, that is not the question here. The fact is unity is a type of solution to interpersonal conflict and it's a very popular, very wide, widely used uh, and in some cases highly respected type of solution. Now the second type of solution of interpersonal conflict emerges when uh, you attack, as it were, the, uh, the factor of diversity. 
you do that, or you can do that in, in many ways, uh, but there are uh, traditional concepts, for example, like consensus uh, or conformism, which express this disappearance of, con of diversity very well. So you have a uh, situation where all the participants share enough presuppositions about values and things to do and preferences and beliefs and how the world is put together that they can always, uh, in the fairly short run, come to an agreement about what is the right way to act. And for example, in, in political uh, philosophy, uh, the classical notion of the polis left by uh, Aristotle was precisely that the polis was viable because it was a community based on the consensus of families that had intermarried over long periods and long generations and raised their children in the same tradition so that everybody in fact had the same deep consensus about everything. And this could be exploited uh, whenever a specific problem arose so that there was uh, agreement on the propriety of any course of action uh, before uh, there was uh, action to be taken. Now these two uh, types, uh, consensus and unity, obviously operate on the persons involved in the uh, original uh, equations, so to speak, of conflict. Uh, no mention was made of scarce resources uh, apart from the uh, persons themselves. So the, the other two uh, so types of solutions or pure solutions, uh, conceptually speaking, to the problem of interpersonal conflict uh, address precisely the uh, question of the scarcity of resources. And the most popular, let's call it the natural law uh, solution, uh, which uh, Professor uh, Hopp uh, described, consists of considering the world not as a domain of persons and B, a domain of uh, scarce resources with no connections between them, you look at the world as the human world in which every scarce resource is connected at present and in the, was connected in the past to, to the actions of specific uh, human beings. So that it, would be possible, at least in theory, and if you kept uh, your records straight, to say whose resource this is. And everything would, as it were, every scarce resource would be assigned uh, to its proper owner. And this would uh, avoid the problem of conflict in the sense that the, the access to scarce resources has at least conceptually a uh, solution. Problems of enforcement, uh, I leave aside for the moment. Uh, they exist in every type of uh, solution, of course, uh, not just in the uh, natural law or property type uh, solution. Uh, the last solution is the most radical one. I'm not going to discuss it further. It is simply to assume away a scarcity or to uh, say, well, we can solve all problems if we have an abundance of everything, right? Now, that solution, you may think of, uh, for example, 
the final stages of communism as promised by Marx. No, so no problem of scarcity anymore, uh, not even a, pro a problem of scarcity in uh, social affairs uh, because there would be enough uh, ways for everybody to uh, fulfill uh, his potential uh, beyond present expectations, no constraints whatsoever. Now these uh, four types of solutions are, let's say, three, unity, consensus, and the property-related uh, uh, solution uh, correspond to uh, familiar structures in uh, sociological literature, in even in uh, common speech, uh, which I call, on the one hand, the society type, which is the unity solution, societies being organizations, the société, societas, organizations that set themselves goals and organize activities among their members or their employees or maybe their slaves, if they have slaves, whatever, their dogs, their uh, social uh, property, things that belong to the society in order to achieve their goals. Right? It's a very uh, familiar structure, uh, in fact. Uh, is probably the structure that's most in the, in the news, in the media, right? because uh, being hierarchical structures, societies have someone at the top whom you can talk to and who will speak for the whole uh, society. With communities, it's a bit different. Uh, communities are flat. They have no hierarchy. There are positions, uh, persons of eminence, greater eminence and lesser eminence, or no eminence at all in communities, but communities are generally uh, devoid of uh, any commanding uh, structure. Now, if you look at the natural law uh, solution, where do you find it? Well, uh, I call it by a special name because English, unfortunately, seems to have no uh, commonly used word to indicate it, I call it the convivial order, and that is just uh, to honor my own language, which has a word for uh, the convivial order, namely uh, the salmon living, the living together, hence convivere in uh, Latin, hence convivial order, uh, my suggestion for English. Now, each of these orders is claimed by some people at least to be respectable. Societies, at least the major figures in it, the leaders claim their, the order of their society to be uh, respectable. Uh, members in the community regard their community as uh, respectable, uh, otherwise they would not uh, long stay in it because communities uh, are fairly easy to exit from, at least most of them. Uh, and the Convivial order is also respectable, although it has no spokesman and it has no cultural identity. So who are the eminent members in the convivial order? That's very different. Yet it is that sort of order that is usually presupposed in a libertarian or extreme radical liberal uh, discourse. It's the, the field where you talk about people regardless 
of their social and their cultural identities. Right? So you can there see the uh, relationship of person to person unadorned by all sorts of uh, titles which are common in communities and in uh, societies. There are no rabbis in the convivial order. There is just a person uh, who has interests in religion, and there are no uh, directors in uh, the convivial order. Uh, there are just people, uh, people minding their own business. Right? So you have uh, here this this reality of uh, interactions that is very vital because we are constantly interacting with strangers or people who are half strangers and with, with, with whom we have very little, if anything, cultural or social in common. So yet we deal with them according to the general principles of human intercourse and these uh, have to be uh, justified or rather defended uh, independently of all the cultural religious, traditional, customary assumptions, the, the legal documents, the statutes, and the constitutions uh, of, on the one hand, uh, communities, and on the other hand, uh, societies. So this is a typical uh, philosophical <laughs> problem. How do you uh, identify this convivial order where everywhere you look, the eye is drawn, as it were, to social constructs and to uh, community identities. Now, if a crime is a of the convivial order, uh, and a, another crime is a negation of the community order, of this or that community order, and still another crime of this or that social order, then, of course, you are referring to very, very different things. You cannot uh, hope to have a single uh, set of arguments uh, if you are discussing crime or punishment for that matter, many other things also, if the people you are discussing with are presupposing a different context of uh, human uh, interaction than you are. If you are, I noticed that, well, Walter Block was not here, but I once. Uh, helped in publishing a series of lectures on economics and religion and many of the authors in uh, his uh, collection of papers uh, wrote from within a particular perspective, a particular society or a particular community. For example, he had many uh, people writing on Jewish economics right? and the, uh, they were of course presupposing everything that it means uh, to be uh, Jewish in the uh, relevant sense, uh, committed to certain uh, moral and religious principles, for example. But if you then move in and uh, with a purely free market discourse, such as uh, Walter Block uh, would use, then of course uh, these people find that they are not being uh, answered on the questions they were raising because they were raising their questions within a particular uh, context and this context is simply uh, denied. So that is the vexing problem really. Uh, if we are confronting 
many types of order, in this case in the convivial order and the uh, community orders and the social orders, uh, how do we rank their uh, prescriptions, so to speak? Now, one thing that sets the convivial order apart is that its law, which I call the natural law, uh, despite what uh, Marco Bassani said about natural law, I think the concept can be defined. It is not just a, a fig leaf for ideologies. Uh, the concept can be defined. Natural law can be uh, argued in any context. It makes apart from logic and the general truths about uh, the physical world and the, uh, the, the capacities of human persons, uh, hardly any uh, contestable or controversial uh, presupposition. So it is something that can be argued quite generally. But this is not the case when you are talking with people within a community or within a society, because then they will bring in their own norms and rules and so on. And then the question is, can these rules be uh, justified outside the particular community? Because you can always uh, agree with people you agree, uh, if, uh, and there is very little need to uh, have any argumentation or any discussion at all. So the notion of crime depends on the context. And if you look at the different contexts in their hierarchy, you see that uh, they are not just three concepts of orders that can be put together in any arbitrary uh, way. You find that the principles of natural law can be applied, not in any community or society, because there are communities and society that violate principles of uh, natural law. But on the other hand, uh, every, the, 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 you can have communities that uh, are in compliance with the natural law, only adding uh, their own uh, cultural elements to it, uh, or societies are in compliance with natural law requirements, only adding their own uh, requirements to those of the natural law. And then the whole question is, uh, where do we, uh, how do we determine what is compatible or not compatible? And the uh, argument that I'd like to make is that the, uh, the notion of crime in the sense of uh, the natural, uh, an offense, a violation of the natural law uh, is in any case the primary uh, consideration. It indicates what used to be called uh, the mala in se, things that are bad in themselves, so in contrast with things that are merely mala prohibita, things that are bad because they are forbidden by some rule or custom or uh, tradition. Now, when, when a rule uh, exists, 
uh, and it forbids something, but the rule is itself in compliance with uh, national law requirements, then you can imagine that there are within communities or societies uh, sanctions applied to these prohibited things, even though in the context where you are not inside the community or inside the uh, society, uh, you would have uh, no argument for applying the sanction. Now, the element of punishment I have not yet uh, mentioned, but let's talk, just to restrict it because I have only a few minutes left, to natural order uh, situation, to the convivial order situation, natural law uh, problem. Uh, if there is a crime that is a violation of law, uh, that does not necessarily trigger the idea, ah, there must be punishment, for the very simple reason that many violations of law occur without uh, malicious intent, without uh, uh, the person wanting to commit a crime, it happens by accident, unintentionally, uh, carelessness, whatever, uh, and the, the harm done to the order of law is objectively done, but to punish the person would introduce or would have to be justified with the principle saying, in effect, that it is all right uh, to uh, treat a person as a criminal even if he has not had the intention to be a criminal. So against his own will, but that is a very uh, vague expression here. So the, the criminal act in the sense of a crimen could be a simple tort and it would have to be solved by uh, the usual remedies in tort, which are restitution, compensation, and things like that. Now, if that is the solution for uh, torts where there is no malicious intent, the question is what happens when there is malicious intent? And here uh, the uh, answer would have to be what do you mean by proof that there was malicious intent? Because there may be an act in anger, right? and then the person repents immediately. He breaks your door and then the next moment he says, sorry, 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 here is money. Uh, uh, let's have, let's, I'll buy you a new door and just come with me to the shop and uh, we'll settle matters. Is there then still an occasion to punish? No, because by the time the punishment would have to be inflicted, uh, the harm would have been redressed. So, I, in conclusion, I would say that punishment, the question of punishment arises only at the moment where the, uh, there is no longer a possibility that, or not just a possibility, where there is an indication that the, uh, the offender does not intend to settle the matter, to make things whole again. So, so the punishment would only apply to persons who put themselves and keep themselves outside the law. Right? Now, uh, I know uh, punishment rings different bells, so I'm not discussing here questions of deterrence or the use of punishment uh, to discipline and teach. Uh, 
but merely punishment as a response to uh, crime. And with this, I thank you.